Scripture seating comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses, I'll start with verse 23 through verse 28, Luke 11, 23 to 28. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it can't comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your word that you give us. And as we turn now we, to the word, we do pray, O God, that you would open our hearts to understand, our eyes to see. Father, that we might be blessed and you might be glorified. Direct us, O Lord. Instruct us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Commitment and authority are not popular concepts today. I'm not sure they've ever really been very popular, but we know they're not popular today, even though they are central to the whole covenantal structure of God's relationship with us. It's in community, in covenant, that God sets forth authority and accountability. And in that account or authority and accountability, we have security and identity. Now in the church, till about the mid-1700s, independency was nearly unheard of. For example, to pull out of the Roman Catholic Church was to be considered eternally lost. There was authority and accountability and commitment. When Jacob Arminius when his followers developed their five articles of faith in contradiction to the Belgic Confession in the Heidelberg Catechism, the five points of Arminianism was born. We don't hear much about the five points of Arminianism because they weren't called that. But the Jacob Arminius himself was dead and his followers presented these five points of doctrine in contradiction to what was being taught by the churches at that time. So his followers presented them in 1610 to the state church of Holland. Now that church didn't act on them independently, but instead called for a meeting of spiritual leaders from five countries. And their response became known as the five points of Calvinism. What I want you to see is, can, can you imagine today in our independency-minded state of one denomination asking other denominations from five nations 
to come together to decide a doctrinal question. Now, actually, that does happen to some extent. Uh, there are some organizations, NAPARC, the National Association of Reformed and Presbyterian Churches, that we're a part of, that uh, have, we haven't come together to answer questions in that nature, but we have spoken to one another. But that whole concept of, of coming together, of not being a lone ranger, a maverick, is pretty much law, or that concept of, of, of unity is pretty much lost. J. Gresham Machen was one of the leaders that helped form the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which is the older sister of the PCA, in, uh, in the Northern Presbyterian Church back in the uh, 20s and 30s. He worked in his battle with liberalism. He didn't just take a group of people and go off and start another church. He worked through the courts of the church, and it really wasn't until um, they, they asked him if he would, he had put together a foreign missions board, because the missions board of the United Presbyterian Church at that time was no longer requiring that you teach Christ as the only way of salvation. So he put a separate mission board together. And a group came down from Princeton one day, and he met in Philadelphia with his board, and they said, uh, Gresham, are you going to disband your board? And he responded, and it was not, 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 a, not a, uh, it was a commission. Now, that means they had the authority of Presbytery to act. He said, well, are you going to require that your mission board present Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation? They said, no. And he said, no. And they defrocked, I think it was five of them, right on the spot. But my point is, he fought the liberalism within the church until he got thrown out. He just didn't go out and start something new on his own. And so, apart from the, the Roman Catholic Church, these individuals and groups understood the covenantal connectedness of the church. And they all understood, all those groups understood, and individuals, commitment to authority greater than themselves. Now, that covenantal understanding of the church began to change in the U.S. around the early to mid-1700s number of influences contributed to that. We talked a little bit about this this morning in uh, Sunday school class. About the, we are talking about community and what led to the demise of community. And tonight we're talking about uh, commitment and authority and what happened to decrease that commitment and lead to this independency that we are familiar with today. It's an independent spirit. But the, one, the influence of the American Revolution had a large influence on that idea of independency. One author wrote, or one man wrote, in all men, if all men are born equal and endowed with, un, with unalienable rights by their creator, then there can be no just reason why he may or should not think, judge, and act for himself in matters of religion. And so that, that, that old spirit of independency that led to the separation of the colonies from England also fed into the church. And they said, well, if we're independent from the authority over the ocean, 
Uh, why should we be bound by commitment to a higher government, a higher authority in the church, and independency began to creep into the church? Nancy Pierce, in her book Total Truth, observes, The church was no longer an organic community in which one was received, and certainly not a spiritual authority to which one submitted. Rather, it was a collection of equal, autonomous individuals coming together by choice. So rather than seeing the organized church as a group who God had called together under the authority of Jesus Christ, it was seen as a voluntary organization you could take or leave as, I hate to say, as the spirit, as your spirit, small s, moved. A second influence was that of newly formed wealth in the colonies. Again, Piercy writes, In this economic climate, radical theories about individual liberty suddenly acquired plausibility. Now, what that simply means is, along with wealth comes that notion that I really don't need you. If I have, if I have a need, I'll just buy it. I'll just go out and buy my way out of it. I don't need to depend on you. I don't need to ask you for anything. I don't need to bother you. I don't need to humble myself to ask. I'll just buy it. That was another influence. And then one third influence was Arminianism, the belief that man's salvation depends on the expression of his own free will. Again, Piercy writes, an Arminian message and a free church ecclesiology or a free church government, in other words, not connected to other churches, fit with their, fit with their experience as independent, autonomous actors in a democratic polity. So again, the idea that, uh, that if I'm free and I choose if I want to be related to God or not, certainly there's no problem with my thinking. I'll choose if I want to be related to you in some kind of a ecclesiastical structure or not. And so the question comes to you and me, what is our view of authority and commitment to the church? Now some think authority is, is just an ego trip uh, on the part of those who have it. And why risk commitment or submission to someone else? And maybe you find yourself thinking that uh, every now and then. Why, why risk it? Well, I'll get, I'm going to get uh, this passage, I think, speaks of two reasons this evening. First, neutrality is death in disguise. Neutrality is death in disguise. To commitment to any authority is contrary to neutrality. Because authority isn't neutral. It stands for something. All authority stands for something. And they use that authority then to uh, direct what they believe and to protect. For example, God's get, God gives authority to promote and protect his people against all that is contrary to his glory and to our good. So far from the authority that God gives to his church being just a, sort of a, an ego trip that guys get off on, 
It's actually something that God gives to protect. Think about your authority as a parent. If, if your child comes up to you, and, and maybe you've had this happen to you, and says, well, listen, the only reason you want authority is so you can control what I do. Well, to a certain extent, that's true. But said in that tone, it usually has uh, other connotations. You, you, you just want to uh, feel that power over me. You just want to keep me from doing all the things in life that are fun. And you're using authority to do that. Well, now, as a parent, you say, no, no, I don't, I don't want you going to that party with those individuals because two months ago, half those individuals wound up arrested for uh, drug possession and the other half wound up being arrested for being drunk underage. Well, you just don't like my friends. Well, kids, you know, sometimes I'll have to be honest. Uh, there are times we'd love to respond to that by saying, that's absolutely right. <laughs> but we try to be a little wiser than that. But there, there are times when we do think that, no, those friends are not leading you in a good direction. And God has placed me in authority. I have to answer to God for what I do and how I raise you. I need to raise you in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That means my, I'm a stewardship of what He owns, and I'm going to have to give an account to Him for the job I do in raising my children. So authority isn't just something that we, we get off on as a power trick, but it is contrary to neutrality. In reality, to reject all authority is simply to, to establish yourself as the only authority. Let me say it again. In reality, to reject all authority is simply to establish your, or seek to establish yourself as the only authority. And then, guess who you seek to promote and protect? Right. Self. Now, Jesus had just made a statement an all-inclusive statement in verse 23 when he said, He who is not with me is against me. And that statement destroys the myth of spiritual neutrality. The world exists in the very context of authority. It's kind of like the air we breathe. Now you can deny that the air exists or oxygen exists, but all the while you're dependent on it for your very being and your very existence. We can deny that authority exists in the world, but we can only deny that authority exists because the authority of God keeps everything running. And if you ever removed that authority, it would all come apart. But listen to Paul in Romans 6.18. And he speaks of mankind's spiritual condition. And he only presents two options. He says very simply, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So spiritually speaking, there is no true autonomy. We are never totally free. At any given time, we're serving God or we're serving Satan. We're serving good, we're serving evil, serving light, serving darkness. But we are under someone's authority and we are serving someone and 
for the believer, we've been freed from the authority of darkness and we've been enslaved to Jesus Christ and we're now under his authority. We are freed in Christ to do that which is right and sadly we're also free the side of glory to do that which is wrong. Now in verses 24 to 26, Jesus follows up his statement when he said, he who is not with me is against me with a story about the casting out of a demon. He said, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That whole story that Jesus tells there illustrates the need for commitment to Jesus Christ. The man in the illustration was delivered from the authority of a demon. And he thought now that he was freed from that demon, he could simply live neutrally. Or, in other words, he could be his own God. He could be his own authority. He didn't have to come under anyone. But he could live without commitment to any authority. He thought he was free to be his own master. He didn't realize his supposed neutrality was actually death in disguise. Again, we serve one of two authorities. We serve God or we serve Satan. And the man in Jesus' illustration didn't realize that failure to submit to God is reject or submit failure to submit to God is rejection of God and forfeited forfeiting of all eternal life because there's only one of two positions. Jesus said you're either for me or you're against me. So to reject one is by default to accept the other. So the first principle we see here is there is no neutrality. There's no place that you can stand in between the great forces of the world, the spiritual forces of the world, and sort of call your own shots, decide what you want to do, who you want to align with, and so forth. We're always aligned with one or the other. So there's no neutrality. And to assume that there's a, a, a neutrality is actually to choose the death in disguise. Now, there's a corresponding principle, just as frightening. <clears throat> Remember, Jesus is building on his having cast out the demon from the man. It says that the, the, in verse 24, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it went out. It went out not because the man decided, you know, I, I am tired of this demon living in me. So I'm going to give him a vacate notice. Your lease is up. Time to move on. Nowhere in scripture do we see that kind of autonomous authority on the part of man. In the gospels, it's always Christ's authority, God's authority that comes showing power and authority over 
the demon, and the demon is cast out. Now, the man didn't realize that. He didn't, uh, that didn't register with him. And in the illustration, this man has been blessed. And yet, in the face of that spiritual blessing, he makes a decision not to commit to Jesus Christ. And so, he, verse 23, he is not with him. Those who are not for me are against me. The man made that conscious decision to be against, to oppose Jesus Christ. Now, the result is that he ends up in greater bondage than he had been in before. We can't be exposed to the blessings of God and then walk away unaffected. We're either hardened or we're softened, depending on our response. But we're never left the same. This individual was not left the same. The demon was cast out. It says his house was in order. But he didn't align himself with another authority. And so the demon comes back. He says, wow. Someone cleaned the place up. I'll go get some of my friends. He came back and the man's condition was worse. Same with us. History is replete with people who grew up hearing the gospel. Grew up experiencing the blessings of God. And here's where we, uh, those of you who have grown up or are growing up in the church, need to take heed. The church can be an extre- or is an extremely dangerous place. To, to sit under the preaching of the word week after week after week. To experience God's covenantal blessings in your life year after year after year. And yet harden yourself rather than submit uh, to the Lord seeing those blessings as God's way of calling you to himself, Romans 2.4 says, Do you not realize that the blessings of God are meant to lead you to repentance? If, if we resist that call of God through the word and through blessing, then there's something happening in our heart. We're not just staying neutral, but our heart is being Pardon. We see cases of that in, in history, examples of those who refused to heed the call to repentance and faith. <clears throat> Two major psychologists who developed positions contrary to the gospel. One was Carl Jung. Carl Jung had nine clergy in his immediate family. Nine. He heard the word. Eight uncles and his father preached the gospel. And you know he heard it. Carl Rogers. Carl Rogers grew up in a Christian home. He actually began studying for the ministry. <clears throat> he later uh, changed that direction. He entered seminary. But after two years, he abandoned his faith, began to study clinical and educational psychology at Columbia University. Both those men 
to our knowledge, died outside of Christ, even though they had tremendous Christian influence in their life. They heard the message. They experienced the blessing. <clears throat> the house was swept and put in order, but they didn't identify. They didn't commit the authority of Jesus Christ, and they wound up living under the authority of Satan, of unbelief. Two major philosophers, Karl Marx. Karl Marx was born of, a Jewish, of Jewish parents who later became Lutherans. And yet Karl Marx wrote, Religion is the opiate, opium of the people. The abolition of religion is the illustrious happiness of men, as the illustrious happiness of men is, demand, is a demand for their real happiness. In other words, you've got to get rid of religion if people are really going to be happy. But he grew up with Christian parents, parents who became Christians. Frederick Nietzsche was born the son of a Protestant minister. And he is famous for his statement, God is dead. Incidentally, his home was later bought and is now used as a mission agency. Kind of interesting irony. But these men believed that they had escaped the confines of Christianity and were now free to search for truth apart from God. And again, to our knowledge, they all died outside of Christ. The man from whom the demon went out thought that he could put aside the blessing that he experienced in the demon going out. He could be his own authority and he wound up in a condition worse than the last. Or the first. So this idea that we can escape, that there's some kind of neutrality that we can walk into and we can stand there uh, making our own decisions, calling our own shots, being master of our own ship, is really the path of spiritual death. Now Jesus <clears throat> addresses one other uh, danger. Others, to avoid commitment and authority, sometimes do that by being nostalgic. In verse 27, we see that nostalgia is a disaster waiting to happen. A woman cried out from the crowd, says, While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Now, I don't know about this particular woman where she stood with the Lord. We don't know that. Jesus doesn't indicate that. But Jesus rebukes her. Because it's possible to speak passionately about Jesus as the focus, as we focus on the emotions and circumstances of his birth and death. And yet have absolutely no submission to the authority of Christ. We're entering the Christmas season. There'll be all kinds of shows on. There'll be, there'll be uh, people talking about the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes. There'll sort of be a, a, an emotional fawning over the birth of Jesus. And sadly, much of that will be, or at least a, a significant portion of that will be by people who have absolutely no commitment to the authority of Jesus Christ. 
who have never bowed the knee to the Lord. But there's this great emotional show, there's a lot of nostalgia about Christmas and what's taking place there. And yet no concept of what the core of that is all about. That the baby was actually with the Lord himself. And that baby would grow and pay the price of our sin and resurrect and be exalted and enthroned to the right hand of the Father where he would reign as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And if that baby, that infant child, would one day return as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings and judge all of mankind for their response to him. Sincerity of heart is not the same as commitment to truth. I can be very sincere and say to you, following the evening service, I want to show you my, my great prowess. And so I've got a man lift that's going to take me to the pinnacle of the church back here. And I would like you to come back and watch me jump. And then we'll go out to get something to eat afterwards. Now I can be just as sincere as I can be. But we can be also sincerely wrong. And I can guarantee you, if I jumped off the peak, the only thing I would need was a nice hole at the bottom that you could quickly shovel things back over. Sincerity and commitment to the authority of Jesus Christ are two separate entities. Nostalgia alone is a disaster waiting to happen. In verse 28, Jesus incorporates the woman's statements to further illustrate his teaching that he who is not against or for me is against me. As he concludes very simply, quote, but he said, on the contrary, Blessed are those who hear the word and observe it. So in in the midst of all that emotion that had just been expressed, Jesus brings us back to reality. The question is, have we heard and have we observed? To hear and to obey is commitment to authority. Neutrality is a deadly myth, nostalgia, a disaster in the making. And only as we hear the word of God and observe it can we be sure that we're not in fact fooling ourselves. In our commitment to his authority, we gain assurance and we gain security. We gain the assurance that yes, my life... Is, is matching up with Scripture, not perfectly. But yes, I can see as I look at Scripture, I'm growing. I'm not as impatient as I used to be. I don't get as angry as often as I used to be. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not having those thoughts as often as I used to. I'm, I'm, I'm growing. I'm expressing more grace. We can see, as we compare our lives to the authority of Scripture, 
that we are in Christ because we see things happening in our lives that would not happen apart from Jesus Christ working and moving and living in us. And in that assurance, then, we also have the security of knowing that, yes, I am a child of God. And we can do that because we have a standard, the Word of God, with which to judge. And in our commitment to authority, we also find identity and purpose. When, it's not so much now, but in, in the 70s, it was big, those of you who are a little older, you know, late 60s, 70s, everyone, or not everyone, but a lot of people trying to find themselves. Young people, I was young at that age, and uh, yeah, the big quest was, I have to find myself. Well, the quest is not to find ourselves. That's not what leads to identity crisis. We always identify ourselves in relationship to someone else or something else. If you ask me, well, who are you? I'll say, I'm Pastor Craig Rao. Well, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm Sue's husband. I'm Andy's father. I'm Suzanne's father. Um, I'm, I work with uh, Pastor Barnes. I'm from Statesboro. You see, we identify ourselves in relationship to something or someone else. Well, when, when we move away from God, we don't have anyone to identify ourselves with. We lose that primary relationship, and so we're not sure who we are. And that's where many people live today. But as we come back and we, we submit to that authority, we commit ourselves to the authority of God, we begin to establish our identity because we, we can look and compare ourselves to Him. We have a relationship to a person. And as we become more like that person through obedience, we know better who we are. I'm a child of God. Well, how do you know that? Because I see God working in my life. And we go through the different qualities, the examples that I mentioned earlier. And as we serve and obey, again, that identity is secure. And our purpose is established. And one of the great statements in the catechism is what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's a purpose statement. And then from that grow all the details. So commitment to authority. Commitment to God and His authority. What is your response to that? Children, let me ask you a question. What's your response to the authority that your parents have over you? Have you ever gone to your parents and said, Mom and Dad, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you have not been afraid to express the authority that God has given you in my life. I want to thank you for giving me the protection of that authority. Now, if you think that is just a hardening of the arteries speaking, I'll go beyond that. Let me challenge you, young people. 
your children. To commit yourself to the authority of your parents. To consciously and intentionally commit yourself to their authority. So how do I do that? Well, guess what? It starts with a commitment to Jesus Christ. You cannot commit yourself successfully to the authority of your parents without a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ, as he changes our hearts, as he gives us his spirit, he enables us to actually obey. But do not be fooled. Our response to authority is central to our lives. The world says, well, that kind of commitment to authority suffocates our self-identity. And destroys our freedom. Again, if you want to know what that looks like, go back, start about 1968, 67, sometime in there, and just look through to the 80s. And you'll see what that looks like and sounds like. But the Bible says, no, commitment to the authority of God secures our identity and assures our freedom in Jesus Christ. Might we grow in our love and appreciation for the structure that God has set up? Might we commit ourselves afresh to that authority that comes from on high? And might we rejoice in the security and the identity that that gives us? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the many mercies that you grant to us. Father, we confess that we don't often look at your authority as a mercy and a grace, but it is. So many times, Lord, we find ourselves thinking as the man from which the demon went out, that somehow whatever transpired, whatever changes in our lives that were blessings occur because of our own strength and our own doing. But oh God, help us not to respond to your blessings that way. Help us to come and further submit ourselves unto you and commit ourselves unto you that we might continue to know the blessings and our heart, that our hearts might not be hardened but even softened, we ask in Jesus' name.